Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And our theme this whole academic year has been revolution, and we've had a series of talks about all sorts of revolutions, cultural, technological, economic and social, but, of course, also political revolutions. And I guess it hardly needs saying that the initial impetus for this was thinking about the centenary of the Russian Revolution. Well, um, we'd be hard-placed to find someone better to talk on that theme than Professor Sheila Fitzpatrick. Uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick is Professor of History at Sydney University and Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago. And she has a, a sort of an honoured role, I think, in the uh, study of modern Russia. She's an expert on many features of that, but particularly, I think it's fair to say, on the social and cultural history of the revolutionary and later the Stalin period, and, and more recently also the political history of that period. And she's written, well, I couldn't count how many books you'd written, but I, I, certainly there were 10 monographs and then there were numerous edited editions of other books and articles and chapters. I mean, there's a voluminous amount of work that um, Sheila Fitzpatrick has produced. It goes through from early work on um, education, arts and culture in the revolutionary period through to a body of work that was very influential, I think, about everyday life um, under Stalin, and um, more recently, a political history on Stalin's team, um, which is there with this wonderful cover and sitting outside waiting for you. Um, Professor Fitzpatrick is, is, is writing a number of works now, and just later this year, um, in June, I believe, um, Misha's War will come out, um, a study of displaced persons, and she's also producing the fourth edition of her book on the Russian Revolution, which many of us have used for, for many years. Um, in addition to all of that, she's written two wonderful memoirs of her life growing up uh, in Australia and studying at Oxford University, and also as a young scholar working in the Soviet Union, and, and that book too is, is out um, on sale Outside, Some of you may have seen excerpts of it in the London Review of Books. Her works received numerous accolades. I won't go through them all, but suffice to say that the American Historical Association gave her an award for distinguished scholarship overall. And this book here that's uh, on sale outside recently, I think just last year in fact, won the Australian Prime Minister's Award for non-fiction in general. So, um, you know, um, Sheila's work is, is, is really quite exceptional. Um, I'm delighted that you're able to come here and speak to us today. Um, Sheila's going to be speaking for about 50 minutes and then we should have plenty of time for questions and discussion. But can I ask you, before we start, to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Sheila Fitzpatrick. I'm trying to work out where is the best place to... This is sort of, of strangely not particularly lighted, but anyway, I think I can, I can see my text. Uh, so what I'm talking about today is not so much the Russian Revolution as uh, in itself, uh, but the centenary of the Russian Revolution and the question of, of who wants to celebrate it. And the reason that this is uh, a topic uh, uh, that I chose is because I was so struck by how nobody seems to want to celebrate it. 
are now this is particularly so as regards the Russians themselves. They have in 2017 uh, the centenary of, their, of, of Russia's great moment in world 20th century history, uh, and they don't know what to do about it because. Uh, basically, uh, Putin's government hasn't made up its mind if revolution was a good or a bad thing. Now, it seems to me it would be a serious loss to Russia in terms of international status if they had to give it up uh, permanently. Uh, but anyway, for now, um, they're largely uh, avoiding any kind of public celebration, uh, although allowing the, the odd scholarly conference. Um, so one of the things that I'll be doing in this talk is, try, is, is examining what they're thinking about this, uh, what, what's the nature of the embarrassment they feel about the Russian Revolution. Now, meanwhile, in the rest of the world, there are Russian Revolution conferences all over throughout the year, but it's quite hard to find scholars who seem confident that the revolution still matters, at least as far as Russia is concerned, as, 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 uh, as, as Russian history. Now, the global impact of the revolution, scholars are okay on that. They still will say it had a global impact. Uh, but in terms of impact in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Russia, they, are, uh, they seem confused. Uh, in a new volume entitled Historically Inevitable, Turning Points of the Russian Revolution, uh, Tony Brenton, the editor, writes that the Russian Revolution may finally be judged, quote, one of history's great dead ends, like the Inca Empire, and concludes that what we have learned from the revolution is, quote, what does not work. Uh, it is hard to see Marxism making any sort of comeback. This is all uh, uh, quoting. No serious economist today is advocating total state ownership as the road to pros prosperity, uh, not the least... Um, of the lessons, and not the least of the Russian lessons of the Russian Revolution, is that for most economic purposes, the market works better than the state. This is all Tony Brenton. Uh, the rush away from socialism since 1991 has been gathering. End of quotation. Now, in perhaps the most unkindest cut of all, Brenton goes on to suggest that by far the world's most significant inheritance from the 1917 revolution may be the Chinese Revolution. Now, even commentators from, uh, from the left, who of course tend not to be academics, uh, but they uh, have also uh, been part of the, um, of, of the, naturally, of the centenary publication, uh, and they are pitching their claims for the revolution remarkably low. Uh, China Mieville has the, 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 the sort of, I think of him as science fiction, but maybe sort of fantasy writing of <coughs> various kinds. Anyway, he has a book called October, on the October, October Revolution, just came out. And he characterizes the Russian Revolution as an ambiguous moment of twilight. Now, you may think that twilight just means what comes before, before dark, but it turns out, both in Russian and in English, it means either the light before, uh, before dark or the light before dawn that uh, sort of grey light. Anyway, so that ambiguous moment of twilight that could have presaged a dawn rather than the coming of night, uh, though he seems to feel it did presage the coming of night. Uh, so what he suggests in the end uh, is that the lesson to learn from the Russian Revolution is, is that it's always, it's always worth giving revolution a shot. In other words, you can, you can try, shaking things up is quite, is, is quite a good exercise anyway. Uh, Tariq Ali justifies his new study, which is the Dilemmas of Lenin, uh, Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, Revolution, quote, as a necessary act of resistance 
given that, quote, today's dominant ideology is so hostile to the social and libertarian uh, liberation struggles of the last century. Slavoj Žižek, a seasoned provocateur who has a new book called Lenin, 19, uh, Lenin, Lenin 1917, I think it's called. Yeah, uh, he goes even further on the lines of the irrelevance of the revolution, despite the fact that this is a pro-Lenin book. Uh, but nevertheless, um, he, he sees um, a hidden Samuel Beckett uh, from uh, uh, Worstwood Ho in Lenin. He, um, his Lenin's revolution, he writes, with its Stalinist outcome, taught us mainly to, quote, fail again, fail better. Now, I think only Zizek would make a connection between Lenin um, uh, and Samuel Beckett. Uh, he goes on to write, Zizek does, that today Lenin and his legacy are perceived as hopelessly dated, belonging to a defunct paradigm. Not only was Lenin understandably blind to many of the problems that are now central to, to contemporary life, ecology, struggles for emancipated sexuality, etc., his brutal political practice, this is still Zizek, is totally out of sync with current de democratic sensitivities, his vision of the new society, as a centralized industrial system run by the state is simply irrelevant. So it's enough to make you miss the Cold War. Then, at least, uh, scholars, both Western and Soviet, were sure that the Russian Revolution mattered. They just dis uh, disagreed about how and why. Now, to look back at some of those disagreements, uh, in the West, the big argument about the Russian Revolution of the 1960s, which then went on in the 70s and the 80s too, <coughs> was whether the Bolshevik seizure of power in October 1917 was a mere coup, as argued by Richard Pipes and the emigre historians, um, and in general, by, and, and, and also by political scientists of the time, or, on the contrary, whether it, uh, that revolution, the October Revolution, was the product of a genuine popular movement, as argued by the so-called revisionists, who were mainly social historians. <coughs> the corollary of the coup argument uh, was that both the October Revolution and the Soviet regime to which it gave birth were undemocratic and the favorite word illegitimate. Stalinist totalitarianism, it was held, was a direct offspring of Leninism and the revolution. So that was the, so to speak, conservative argument. On the other side was the argument of the 1917 uh, revisionists. <coughs> Alex Rabinowitz, Diane Koenke, Bill Rosenberg, Ron Suni, and others. Now, I should say here that I was a revisionist, but not a 1917 one. So <coughs> I'm kind of, thank you. I'm talking about, about people other than me and arguments that were not particularly uh, mine. <coughs> now, those historians based their uh, argument for popular support on archival as well as published material, which they were able to consult as early participants on the US and British scholarly exchanges with Russia and with the Soviet Union established in the 1960s. Now that the fact that they had this archival access might might seem to uh, might lend authority uh, to their arguments, uh, but in fact, uh, Pipes and other opponents countered with the claim that since the Soviets allowed the Soviet social historians 
who came on the, on the exchange, then into some archives with some topics, but not into others. Uh, they, were effectively, they, they were effectively manipulating these historians, pushing them into the kind of topic, uh, notably labor history topic, uh, that suited the Soviet agenda. Now, to continue on the, uh, on the, the, the clash of opinions on the revolution, uh, most of the revisionists were unhappy with the term totalitarianism for um, uh, the, the, the Soviet system they, uh, on, the, uh, on the argument that uh, it put the Soviet Union, uh, it, uh, it, was, it, it was pejorative by its essence, putting the Soviet Union in the same box as Nazi Germany. And many of them thought that the revolution in its early moments in the Lenin period had some democratic potential, and they mainly saw basic discontinuity between Leninism and the Russian Revolution on the one hand and Stalinism on the other. Now, as usual with scholarly arguments, it would be <coughs> hard to say who won. Within the profession, the revisionists probably prevailed, uh, to Pipes' disgust. Uh, but it was their opponent's story, uh, the, the story of the coup, the illegitimate seizure of power, which gave birth to an illegitimate and undemocratic regime. Uh, this was the one <coughs> that continued to grip the public. In this story, essential continuity between Lenin and Stalin is axiomatic. Uh, repression is on a mind-boggling scale, uh, newly and better documented from archives opened after uh, 19, uh, 1991, and this repression is not only the most important revolutionary outcome, but basically the only one worth considering. So that was that was the debate uh, back then, basically a Cold War debate, uh, which derived its passion uh, to, to some degree from that. <coughs> so if we move forward, what we find is uh, that the, 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 um, the fierceness of debate dropped down, but so also I did the feeling that there was something worth arguing about with regard to the, to the Russian Revolution. Uh, by the uh, late 1990s, cultural history had replaced social history as the dominant presence in the historical profession internationally. And the 1991 breakup of the Soviet Union into its constituent parts made everyone interested in empire and borderlands. Now, the collapse of the Soviet Union produced a general shift in perspective among Western historians about the significance of the Russian Revolution. Uh, it became clear, you might not logically have thought that the... Um, that the status of the revolution depended on the continuing existence of the Soviet Union. But as, as, as soon as the Soviet Union disappeared, it, made, it became clear that people made this kind of connection. If the revolution could no longer be regarded as a nation-founding revolution, one that gave birth to a new nation, uh, its, scholar, its status seemed to be tarnished in scholarly eyes and I think also in popular ones. Now, about this time also, young scholars became interested in continuities across the revolutionary divide. All the PhD topics started to be from the 1890s into the 1920s rather than either Soviet history or, or, or pre-revolutionary history. Uh, and uh, this involved uh, a, a diminution of, of interest in what happened after and as a result of the revolution. <coughs> uh, Peter Holquist, one of those young scholars, uh, 
gay, uh, produced an article with the, with the title What's So Revolutionary About the Russian Revolution? And it turned out, if you read the article, nothing much. Uh, especially once one noticed how many Soviet state practices came out of the First World War and or were common to whites as well as reds in the Civil War. Now, the re-emergence in the 1990s in historical writing of the First World War uh, meant that the revolution in its turn was pushed out of the limelight. Now, it had been a quite a strange situation. There's, in history, there's a huge, scholarship, a huge amount of scholarship on all the belligerent nations, uh, uh, basically, except Russia. Over time, there was uh, much less on Russia than on, 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 on Britain, on France, on Germany, uh, on the Habsburg Empire. And the reason was, I think, that, that, that the revolution had been such a dominant presence and that the war becomes a mere... Uh, it, a part of the sequence of events, of events that led to the revolution. Uh, but after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, suddenly the First World War became visible uh, to scholars again. Uh, uh, and as I say, this pushed the revolution in turn out of the, uh, the limelight. Uh, now it had earlier been uh, uh, the, the, the practice, at least in some American universities, of teaching the late imperial period under the heading the pre-revolution. In other words, in, in terms of, uh, with the implication that the significant things in, in uh, late, uh, in, in the imperial period were those that led uh, to revolution. Now that fell out of favor. And now, what was interesting was not what led to the revolution. In it, what was interesting about the late imperial period was not things that specifically led to the revolution, not the revolutionary movement, not the labor movement or whatever, uh, but rather the things that, had, that didn't and had previously been overlooked. So you have a, a bunch of work on the church, on religion, on everyday practices and folk beliefs, on non-Russian non border areas, uh, on women and, and on crime. Uh, now, crime is kind of interesting because in the, uh, the social historians of 1917 had not liked to talk about urban crime in the months between February and October uh, because some of the manifestations of... of, of, of uh, there are various kinds of behaviours that can be described either as revolutionary or criminal, and that there was a preference for describing them as revolutionary, but now uh, we've got um, the back uh, as, as criminal. And uh, uh, Mark Steinberg's new book, The Russian Revolution, 1905-1921, is uh, an example of, of, of that interest in, uh, <laughs> in all the things that are, uh, that are peripheral to the Russian Revolution. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice book, but what it is basically is not so much about the revolution, but all the things that have, have normally been considered peripheral to it. Uh, so what about in uh, the Soviet Union and, and, and in Russia? Uh, in the Soviet Union, the world historic character of the October Revolution, the centrality of the Bolshevik Party and its legitimacy as representative of the working class, as well as its inevitability in Marxist terms, uh, were for a long time articles of faith. Now, it was hard to discuss, hard to have real arguments within the Soviet context about, uh, about the revolution. Uh, these discussions were fairly tightly controlled. Uh, debates did break out from time to time, uh, but they were normally focused, at least overtly, on fairly narrow issues. For example, 
and the scope of Bolshevik influence in the Russian Empire before 1917 or between February to July uh, or internal socioeconomic differentiation within the working class. Uh, <coughs> in other words, not big global questions about the revolution, uh, but rather uh, fairly small ones uh, that, uh, whose significance could be expanded outward, but which involved um, fairly pedantically documented factual correction. Uh, so the big fight for reform-minded Soviet historians was cutting through the web of legend, uh, for example, on uh, the, 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 the role of the, the uh, aurora in the taking of the, of the Winter Palace, cutting through the web of, le of legend and getting at historical truth. Uh, truth being a term that was a lot easier to use uh, in the Soviet context than uh, elsewhere because uh, once you saw... Once you saw your, your work, uh, once you saw a web of legend and, and obfuscation surrounding an issue, uh, it, was, uh, it, it then seemed a relatively simple matter to tell the truth about that issue by cutting through and correcting uh, that web of obf obfuscation. So truth is a lot more accessible in Soviet times than uh, most of us usually find it. The collapse of the Soviet Union initially produced a uh, historiographical crisis of an existential kind uh, among um, Russian scholars, journalists, and the public with regard to the Russian Revolution and the Soviet period. Now, there was an initial response to the, uh, to the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, to try to pretend that it actually never existed and try to reconnect back uh, across 74 years uh, to, the Tsarist, to, to the late Tsarist period. The spirit initially was one of national nostalgia for the monarchy <coughs> and, to some extent, a search for alternative political heroes uh, and people like Piotr Stolupin. Uh, it became fashionable in Russia to adopt the view, long held by many émigré historians, that the late Tsarist period had been a time of rapid economic development, development and cultural flowering, spoiled only by the random disaster of the First World War. Sympathy with the October Revolution in Russia was at a low ebb, and Richard Pipe's 1990 monograph, of course originally published in, in the US, uh, treating the revolution as a tragic catastrophe, was eagerly translated into Russian. When Russian historians got back their nerve to write about the revolutionary upheaval, it was largely in terms of violence and terror, white as, uh, as much as, uh, red as much as white, white as much as red during the Civil War. Um, Vladimir Buldakov, perhaps the, 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 the most widely read of the Russian historians writing on this period recently, uh, labelled it as a new time of troubles, comparable to that of the 17th century and other periods of anarchic Russian bunt, or a, a, a revolt without a clear direction. So, let's move uh, to present-day Russia and the dilemmas confronting the post-Soviet government, the Putin regime. Bunt is the last thing that Putin and his advisers want to encourage with the centenary of the Russian Revolution. Now, mind you, it seemed unlikely uh, to many uh, Russian observers that the centenary would, in fact, uh, uh, produce popular enthusiasm for Bunt. Uh, it was felt that the Kiev Maidan of 2014 
much reviled in Russia and not only by Putin's regime, understood as opening the way to national disintegration and foreign interference in the country, uh, this was seen to be a powerful discouragement to any, uh, too much disorder on the streets. But perhaps the real problem uh, that the centenary of the Russian Revolution posed for Putin's government was that opinion on it remained deeply polarized in Russia. To celebrate meant offending one substantial public, while to refuse to celebrate or outright to condemn meant offending another. As of 2005, a poll by the independent Levada Institute found that 56% of respondents viewed the Russian Revolution in a more or less positive life and 31% negative. Uh, in February 2006, <coughs> a, new, a new poll rating different epochs of Russian history found that 30% viewed the late Tsarist period as, quote, more good than bad, as against 19% with the opposite view, while with regard to the first years after the revolution of 1917, which is the, the form, oddly enough, in which they put their question about the revolution, 19% had a po held a positive view and 48% a negative. So that might seem quite skewed to negative views, but at the same time, revolutionary romanticism was clearly not dead. As another poll asking the hypothetical question of how the respondent would have acted in the, in the October Revolution had he or she been around at that time, elicited the response among the over 40 group that 22% uh, would have actively supported the Bolsheviks and only 6% would have fought against them. In the under-40 under group, the partisans were more e evenly, ba evenly balanced with 8% actively pro-Bolshevik and uh, would have been actively pro-Bolshevik and 9% would have been actively anti. But with this younger age group, there is quite an interesting additional group uh, which uh, 20%, which says they, rather than participating on either side, they would have gone abroad. <laughs> Putin's regime was not the overthrow of the Soviet one, but it is not officially its successor either. The relationship is essentially ambiguous. The choices between Putin are therefore much more complicated than those facing, say, the Irish Republican government when the centenary of the Easter Rising uh, part of the country's foundation myth, came around in 2016. The Southerners had to tread carefully with the Northern Unionists and the British, of course, and to emphasize that revolutionary violence was a thing of the past. But basically, they were free to hold a non-problematic celebration of the heroes and martyrs of their historic independence struggle. In the case of, of France, in 1889, the centenary year of the French Revolution, President Carnot addressed an enthusiastic audience in the Hall of Mirror at Versailles, hailing the French Revolution's overthrow of tyranny and enshrinement of sovereignty of the people. Now, he did have to make a qualification on sovereignty of the people that what he meant by that was sovereignty through their elected representatives, not in a disorderly manner on the street. So he too had a, a somewhat of a dislike to uh, too much popular demonstration in support of uh, some of the French revolutionary ideals. Uh, so the Irish and the French found something in their revolutions uh, to celebrate when centenaries came up. Uh, but what ideals could Putin celebrate with the resonance of Irish independence and the French overthrow of tyranny? Socialism and equality, but the regime Putin heads is not socialist, uh, and its relation to equality uh, uh, it, uh, yeah, uh, seems to be a relatively distant one. 
dictatorship of the proletariat, perhaps. Well, that's the wrong kind of dictatorship. International revolution. That was a non-starter with the Russian public even the first time around. In other words, it is quite hard to see which of the revolutionary uh, slogans or ideals Putin could uh, easily uh, use. Not surprisingly, therefore, centenary celebrations in post-Soviet Russia uh, promised from the start to be very low-key. In, uh, well in advance, Putin had indicated uh, that 1917 remembrance should take the form of, quote, deep, objective, professional evaluation. Nothing on the streets, in other words, the academics can talk about things if they want to. Noting at the same time, this is 2014, uh, that the event might, some might want to, to downgrade the event from a revolution, a revolution, to a more pedestrian overturn, a pietavarot. Now that didn't happen. They haven't changed that nomenclature, uh, but it, it was something he suggested early on. Now, it was not, people were then waiting to see what she's going to say about the celebration. And so 2016 goes on and you get, to, you get to December and still Putin hasn't said anything. Then on 19th of December 2016, uh, Putin got Iran to issuing a bland and uninformative official order on the presentation of centenary celebrations. So evidently there was going to be something in his mind. So the, and the formation of an organizing committee, of course, an essential thing for any celebration whose first meeting would be held, it said rather vaguely, in the winter. Now, in the winter practically gets you up to February, which when, if you remember, the first of the revolutions uh, occurred, February old style, so March new style. Anyway, so that did seem to be uh, pushing it um, uh, quite late. Uh, according to a political blogger at the time, the president's administration was still making up its mind how to handle the centenary, and no decisions had been made, including about funding. In March 2017, uh, we had a little bit of clarification. A spokesman, or he said he was a spokesman for Putin, and I assume that this is probably the case, met a reporter from the New York Times, and he said the Kremlin had decided to, quote, sit out the centenary as far as public events were concerned uh, <clears throat> because it remained too divisive. And, he said, uh, they would be issuing no official guidelines on interpretation no official line on the revolution, in other words, was going to be forthcoming. Now, this, was, this news, however, was not put out for the Russian public. This is with a, uh, uh, it's, it's said in a uh, supposedly informal conversation with a foreign journalist uh, and is published out, outside. Of course, that doesn't mean that Russians didn't know about it in the age of the internet. But nevertheless, it, was, it, did, it constituted a sort of oblique way of, of putting out a message for sure. Now, there still, um, still had not been clear whether the Russians were going to organize anything on the lines of big scholarly conferences. There were some little ones, sort of more or less private or, uh, sort of initiatives, but a, a puzzling lack of any, any, any sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, more pretentious event. It was actually not until late January uh, that uh, a body calling itself the National Commission of Historians, which had connection with, with, with a clearly good regime connection, 
uh, also with Academy of Science participation, GIMO, etc. Uh, anyway, that uh, body put out a, an announcement or sent out invitations for an academic conference on the revolution to be held in late September. So late, late January, very end of January for late September is extremely late uh, to organize a scholarly conference. Uh, they said a draft program would follow, uh, which it did in a month or so. Uh, no, I think it was actually a couple of months. Uh, so it, it came quite recently. And when that draft program came, um, it was interesting because you, you read it and it could have been a grant application to an American foundation. There, was, there really was no political spin in the sense of no Russian political spin. Uh, it, um, it had panels on revolution as violence. It had, has, or has uh, panels on global impact and so on. On the question of Russian impact, of its significance actually for Russia, there is a, a, a sort of complete um, lack of, of uh, any, at, at this point anyway, of any evident discussion. So we'll see. It will be really interesting to see what, what it's actually like um, uh, when it happens. Post-Soviet Russia needs a usable past, but it's hard to see how the Russian Revolution can contribute. Now, this is in contrast to Stalin and the Stalin period. Stalin has an obvious place in the post-Soviet national story as a nation builder, as the, victor, the leader to victory in the Second World War, uh, as leader of Russia in its superpower days. Now, Lenin and the revolution do not easily fit into this narrative. Now, true, the revolution was an event of recognized historical magnitude that caused shook the world, in uh, John Reed's uh, phrase, and in that sense, an asset for Russia and the international prestige stakes. But on the other hand, it was a violent regime change leading to prolonged social disorder, which is not good in itself from Putin's point of view, but even worse in that the victims were the, were the Tsars, for whom present-day Russians often feel nostalgic affection, and the Russian Orthodox Church, with which Putin has developed close ties. Now, one could, of course, treat the revolution simply as a prequel to the, quote, gigantic achievements of the Soviet, of the Soviet in effect, the Stalin era, uh, but that doesn't solve the problem of whether the revolution itself was something to applaud or deplore. As the speaker of the Duma confessed in, uh, in, uh, in the months leading up to the, um, to the centenary year, he'd been thinking for a long time about what to do about this upcoming centenary, but was unable to see what, uh, what was feasible. Uh, quote, the role of the Duma in February 1917, which pushed the Tsar into abdication, would scarcely appeal to our current deputies. Now, this organizing committee, I mentioned that an organizing committee was to be appointed, and indeed it was appointed and it, it, uh, it issued an anodyne, anodyne station, a statement uh, on the moral educational role that, the, that a forthcoming centenary celebration, supposing it were to happen, uh, would, would play. Uh, in what it could do, what such a celebration could do, would be remind citizens of, quote, the value of unity, of civil accord, the ability of society to find compromises and not allow extreme schism in the society in the form of civil war. Now, that's quite an unusual message to draw from a revolution. Uh, it might even seem uh, to be an outright condemn, to imply outright condemnation of the revolution, uh, and therefore not quite to achieve the balancing act that Putin uh, seemed to be after. 
Uh, however, I, the, the balancing act always seemed to be in danger of falling over into outright condemnation of the revolution uh, as far as the Putin people were concerned. The Minister for Culture, Vladimir Medinsky, uh, had since the middle of 2015 been pushing a more elegant version of the moral educational role. His idea was that the theme for the centenary celebration should be reconciliation, uh, and he clearly gave serious thought to this. Now, Medinsky has been in trouble uh, with his academic credentials uh, being questioned, but nevertheless, uh, this was a quite reasoned uh, statement he issued, or, or rather, it was contribution to a round table. His personal starting point was the premise that revolutions are always bad and, bad and bloody, making things worse, not better, leading to injustice and moral degradation, de degradation destroying society's, quote, best people, and giving opportunities to the worst. At the same time, this particular revolution, the Russian one, it, was, it still was a Russian one, still labeled great in post-Soviet histories, <coughs> in the textbooks and taught in schools. So in a speech <coughs> at a 2015 round table, uh, Medinsky did his best to negotiate the contradictions. The best way to see the Russian Revolution, he suggested, was as a tragedy, but with heroic elements. Terror on both sides of the revolution and civil war should be condemned. But protagonists on both sides uh, were often idealists, they were often heroic, and such people should be remembered and respected. That is, as long as they were genuine idealists and not war criminals. War criminals is his term, an unusual one in Russian discuss uh, discussion of the revolution. Uh, there was, in fact, he argued, no moral difference between the two sides, between reds and whites. Uh, seen in retrospect, both the reds and the whites were ruled by patriotic efforts to achieve the flourishing of the homeland. It was just that each side understood that in its own way. Both sides, Medinsky argued, contributed to the legacy uh, that came from Russia's past. By the same token, the Russian Revolution and the Soviet era uh, are an integral part of Russian history. Uh, the continuity and succession, that is preemptivist in Russian, of regimes, that is the succession from imperial regime to Soviet regime to post-Soviet regime, has to be recognized. What has to be avoided at all costs is raskol, that is splitting, the acrimony splitting of society. And the worst thing that could happen to Russia, supposing it were to celebrate 2017 centenary, uh, in Medinsky's view, would be a revival of old sectarian passions. Reconciliation was the banner that could heal the wounds and set Russia on course uh, for the future. Now, one can only imagine the fury of Lenin, the great Raskolnik, of having his revolution celebrated in this way. Uh, actually, even here, Medinsky could claim a kind of uh, succession, preemptivist, from his precursor. <coughs> that is the first Bolshevik minister of enlightenment who happened to be the man I wrote my dissertation on, so I have to throw this in. Uh, Anatoly Lunacharsky, who at the height of the Civil War uh, wrote a play expressing the thought that red and whites were each fighting for their own truth, playing their appointed historical roles. Now, that, uh, Lenin actually didn't appreciate that interpretation of what was going on. So uh, Lunacharsky got in trouble for it. Now, Putin's uh, formal order uh, of, of, of 16th of December on celebrating the centenary made no mention of the reconcilia reconciliation agenda, 
but a few, few weeks earlier, one source quoted him as saying uh, that the lesson that needed to be drawn from the Russian Revolution was, quote, reconciliation, strengthening the social, political, and civil accord that we have managed to achieve. It is inadmissible, he said, to drag schism, malice, resentments, and embitterment of the past into <coughs> our present life. Inadmissible to speculate in one's own political and other interests on tragedies that touched the life of each family in Russia on whatever side of the barricades their ancestors may have found themselves. Now that, that theme that for, actual, for ordinary Russians <coughs> what the revolution brought regardless of, 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 of the possible nobility of its aspirations or whatever, what the revolution brought to individual families was suffering. That has been a big scheme in all the writing a big, a big trope in all the writing <coughs> uh, about um, the, the centenary. <coughs> now, reconciliation had the support of the Moscow Patriarch. Uh, <coughs> and even of the heirs of the Romanov dynasty, uh, Princess Maria Vladimirovna, and Prince Georgi Mikhailovich. They planned a visit to Moscow and St. Petersburg in March 2017 <coughs> in the hope of reconciling uh, today's supporters and opponents of the revolutions of 1917. <coughs> but it looks as if those plans were shelved. In Ireland, too, early thoughts of inviting Prince Charles to celebrate the centenary of the, uh, the Easter uprising in 2016 were also perhaps wisely abandoned. <coughs> the problem with a reconciliation agenda is while it may conceivably unite warring factions, it's equally likely to annoy partisans of both sides. Now, in 1889, on the centenary of the French Revolution, the French built the Eiffel Tower uh, to con commemorate that uh, event. In 2017, the Russians have nothing so ambitious in mind, but Medinsky's plan does include an edifice, a monument to reconciliation, Pamitnik Primirenia, uh, to be built, uh, well, it's to be built in the Crimea. The location was appropriate, Medinsky said, uh, not because of any recent uh, events involving uh, transfer of ownership of the Crimea, but rather because this is the place where the civil war ended. But obviously, in light of, uh, of, of recent events, it carries contem contemporary symbolic weight as well. <coughs> now, the suggestion for this monument uh, of, of reconciliation uh, <coughs> came from an emigre banker, and allegedly an art collector, uh, Prince Nikita Lobanov-Rostovsky. Uh, but it also had the support of Medinsky and allegedly of Putin and also the, the patriarch. Now, an international competition for the design of this monument uh, was announced on 1st of December 2015, although it would have been hard to make this design as it hadn't been de decided where it should be. In other words, not only a site hadn't been determined, but the city hadn't been determined that was going to uh, get it. There were various apparently competing uh, claimants. The great moral potential, uh, potential of such a monument was hailed by a spokesman for the Russian Ministry of Culture uh, who described it in grandiose terms as not just a monument 
to reconciliation between reds and whites, but also, quote, in a global sense, reconciliation of East and West, Russian and Western civilization, and uh, the overcoming of that schism which had uh, occurred between Russia and Ukraine. But although the monument is supposed to be unveiled in November 2017, it was not until late January of this year uh, that Kerch was announced as a site and some architects were named. Whether they were the winners of this competition was unclear. They appeared to be local, not international, but anyway, who knows? It was all very low-key and not very widely disseminated. Uh, now, while Crimea's Russian-led government evidently supports the plan, there's also local opposition. Uh, there can be no talk, um, no talk of any monuments of reconciliation between reds and whites, uh, said one participation, adding uh, that whites, by the way, betrayed their country. We have to stop this return to Tsarism, he said. <clears throat> now, in the West, uh, to draw towards my conclusion, Conferences on the centenary of the Russian Revolution are being held in all sorts of places all over the world on, on I think, uh, every continent. And no doubt, uh, they're all going to be offering the court deep objective professional evaluation recommended by Putin. Now, if there are passionate controversies waiting to erupt about the revolution's significance, they have yet to show themselves. Seems to me that the plethora of conferences is perhaps more of an academic reflex at the arrival of a significant date than a sign of conviction that the Russian Revolution still matters, or rather that it matters to anybody not professionally invested in its study. Now, Kritika, the journal uh, of Explorations in Social History, a, a, a widely read journal coming out of, um, out of the US, uh, writing in a symposium uh, organized by Kritika uh, on the revolution at the end of 2015, uh, the British historian uh, Steve Smith suggested gloomily uh, that, quote, while our knowledge of the Russian Revolution and the Civil War has increased significantly in recent decades, in key respects, our ability to understand, certainly to empathize with, the aspirations of 19, 1917 has diminished. And other participants were similarly downbeat. Current circumstances might be more conducive to dispassionate discussion of the revolution than they were 20 years ago, as Don Rowley suggested in the same symposium. But perhaps it was those very Cold War, very passions of the Cold War, impeding objective discussion, uh, that made scholarly participants in the broader public feel that their arguments matters, mattered. With the Western public, the most influential recent interpretation of the Russian Revolution has been Feige's People's Tragedy in the mid-1990s, uh, portraying the revolution as a chaotic disturbance that, that uh, most importantly uh, or most visibly stirred up the dregs of Russian society rather than its famed conscious working class and caused great suffering and destruction. Now, on the horizon, uh, due for publication in the autumn of this year, uh, is Yuri Slyoskin's long-awaited House of Government, which may actually offer an interpretation that uh, enables people to feel that the Russian Revolution matters. Uh, he is arguing, basically, uh, that the Russian Revolutionary Movement and earlier Soviet rule are analogous to a millenarian revolution, uh, religious movement, uh, which is an argument that's been made before, but never at the, at the length of 960 pages 
and uh, actually very, uh, it's not an argument that is dear to my heart, but it, it's quite plausible. I mean, that is, as I read it, I was, I was uh, as I read it, I was uh, drawn into it. Now, I'm sure this is going to set off a new round of scholarly discussion, but I think it may even solve the relevance question for a broader public, uh, since um, not because Slyoskin is arguing this is relevant, uh, arguing, making this argument for relevance, but rather because I think the broader public is now conditioned, having for years thought about the, uh, the danger of communism, the danger of international communism, and now is thinking of in terms of radical Islam, and of course that has its own millenarian aspect. So I think that people may draw a parallel uh, there, uh, even if it's not one intended by Slyotkin. <coughs> in Russia, it remains to be seen if the reconciliation message is premature. Uh, the 42% of the Levada Center's respondents who in 2005 said they would have tried to sit out the revolution or emigrated rather than actively participating, they may be ready for reconciliation. But there remain vocal partisans on each side. <coughs> the main television stations uh, channels seem to be hedging their bets. Uh, one will run a new 12-part series based on Alexei Tolstoy's uh, Road to Calvary. Uh, a trilogy about suffering in the revolution and, and civil war, uh, written by a Kant, who was an emigre when he started it and a Soviet citizen when he finished. Uh, another channel is offering a new film called just 1914, not 1917, 1914, with Richard Pipes as a scholarly advisor, in which 1917 uh, is is visible apparently, judging by the description, the advanced description, simply as a malevolent, a malevolent force in the future. In the words of the film's synopsis, nobody could have imagined that the rich, stable, flourishing Russian empire had only three months, three years and two months to live. Now, legend has it that when Joanne Lai was asked in 1972, about whether the French Revolution had been a success, he said it was too early to tell. Now, this was based on a misunderstanding of the question, but it's still a too nice an answer to ignore. It's, um, in a sense, that is always true of great historical events, because our understanding, influenced by current circumstances, keeps changing. Although Francois Furet, uh, when the French bicentenary came around, famously claimed that the revolution is over, the French Revolution, in fact, was still an object of strong contestation at that time in 1989. Now, 30 years ago, most Russian or Soviet scholars, whatever side we were on, uh, felt that we knew what to make of the Russian Revolution, or at least that we knew what the interpretative choices were about the revolution. At the moment, it seems we are not so sure, uh, and my sense is that this is basically because the shock of the collapse of the Soviet Union still hasn't been fully internalized. We don't, we don't know what to think about the Russian Revolution because we, once it is, it is downgraded from its status as a nation-creating revolution, uh, we're not sure um, what to think about it. Uh, however, times will change, as they always do, and the Russian Revolution, with its undeniably huge impact on the 20th century, is probably too big a historical event ever to go away. 
who knows what our 22nd century descendants will be saying about the Russian Revolution when the bicentenary comes around. The only thing I think we can be, be sure about there is that they'll probably be saying something and it will probably be different from what we're saying now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we've got a good chunk of time for questions and discussions, so I'll just see if anyone wants to start us off. Yes, could you just say who you are and where you're from, just for the speaker, please? My name's Jonathan Steele. Um, I wonder if you could say something about what the Russian Communist Party, or the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, is saying about the centenary. Isn't it the case that Gennady Zyuganov, the leader, as long ago as 20 years ago, in the first years of the post-Stalin, post-Soviet period, was talking about reconciliation of reds and whites and was making sort of quite close contacts with the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church, so that he sort of began this red and mm -hmm. white reconciliation thing already 20 years ago? Oh, that, that, I, I really don't know much about that, but it's very interesting if he did that. As, as far as I know, the, the, the communist stance is that the revolution should be marked as a great, as a great event. Uh, the slogan I have seen uh, uh, is um, uh, Lenin, Lenin could do it, we can do it. That slogan come, um, carried by communists in, 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 in local demonstrations. But I don't know, I, I should know, but I don't know what Zuganov has been saying about it. Okay. Who's next? Yes, just wait for the microphone. <clears throat> Um, I'm thinking of films by and, and artworks and so forth, and, and nobody watches his films anymore because he, nobody likes him as a human being. But Mikhalkov, who was one of my favorite directors, even though he turned out to be kind of a slime bag, I understand. But um, films like Slave of Love, films of, that, were, that were just so beautifully made, and relatives of mine who stayed and fought in the revolution and didn't go to America with the rest of the family. But the, the artworks, is there any art? coming from, you know, reflecting back to the revolution, Zhivago, you know, Pasternak Zhivago. Is there any restoration, is there any reference going on currently to any of that? I haven't seen anything. I, I mean, and, and it's, it's part of, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's part of the sort of great void that is, is surrounding. But on the other hand, I, I could easily have missed it. So if anybody has, I'd, I'd be most interested to hear about it. So, yes, up the back. Oh, David Stevenson from LSE. Um, can you tell us more about how the government has been commemorating the First World War between 1914 and 1917 as a national... Sorry, can you say that again? Yeah, can you say more about how the Putin government has been commemorating the First World War itself and Russia's part in it between 1914 and 1917? Yeah, yeah. Um, that I, I, I mean, there, I have seen only, I haven't seen anything that looked like a campaign to me of, uh, 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 of celebration, uh, only uh, a sort of coverage of a, uh, of a more detailed than, uh, than previous times. Do you think that there is an actual 
uh, a sort of consolidated effort to draw attention to uh, to the Russian um, um, well, well, I mean, I, I heard um, a lecture a couple of weeks ago by Jay Winter from Yale who gave a film clip, actually, of a, something that was circulating in Russia, which was a very patriotic presentation of Russian soldiers fighting against German soldiers, and they didn't have proper gas masks, but they overcame the German gas and nonetheless and drove off the soldiers and uh, the drove, drove off the Germans and uh, mm-hmm. the kind of religious connotations and patriotic connotations. Now, I don't know whether this was a, a government-made film, but it was obviously a film that was on re- general release in Russia, as he explained yeah. it. And, no, and I, ha- I haven't... I, yeah. I, I've, I, I don't see that as something particularly... Char- just characteristic of the last few years, mm. but of something that's been around for a longer period, uh, that, that, that celebration of the Russian patriotic uh, effort. And I also, I mean, I assume that it is fine with the Putin regime, but I, I, I haven't seen them also. Uh, 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 they probably, uh, my sense was it they didn't really need to push people to do it because, because there was a, a, a sort of natural turning of interest uh, on the part of writers and, and filmmakers and so on, and historians. Okay, yes, please. <clears throat> Hello, I'm, I'm Nigel Davis. My great-grandfather um, was a white Russian, and he left just in time, but his family remained in, uh, in Moscow. And... You mentioned the suffering, and the suffering is clear in the letters that we've been passed down to us of the real hardships that were endured. Um, but also the guilt it appears to be from emigrants that, that they're, they're, they're at a loss because they can't go back to the country to help, although they're wealthy, in how that they can respond to that suffering. And... In, in this case, this individual, he moved to Belgium and subsequently to Jersey, uh, which was obviously invaded by the Nazis, and he helped at great risk to himself Russian prisoners of war. And it appears that that, that suffering just remained, uh, the awareness of that suffering, for a long period of time. And mm-hmm. that, that had a big impact, in, in, certainly in our family. So I wonder whether that's been picked up Yes, well, I, I think the, um, I mean, the memory of suffering is, is in a way so pervasive in Russian thinking about, uh, 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 about themselves. But, but, that, that, but it hasn't always, um, or in fact it hasn't usually focused uh, before now on the revolution. I mean, the memory of suffering, suffering has, has, has been mainly directed at, at, uh, at the Stalin period, or, or, or also the Second World War to some degree, popular suffering. Uh, so, so, so sort of directing it back to the Russian Revolution is, is really quite interesting. But your grandfather, he, it was consciousness of the suffering of the revolutionary period that led him to feel he needed to, he wanted to help Yes, because his, his family that, that remained in Russia um, were, were, were becoming um, virtually destitute after a number of years because of the shortages of food and their, their status had diminished to such a degree that, 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 that their relative suffering was very high. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the impacts of this was, was that his son, although he was brought up in, in Belgium 
and well-educated, became uh, an ardent communist and then moved to Britain and, 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 and um, wasn't allowed to, to join the services, etc. So it had a, a long-lasting impact. Uh-huh, yeah. Just, no, that's, just that's in, really in, in the course of events over the years. But I think the, um, the, the issue, I think, that, that was from a great-grandfather was, was just trying to come to terms with what could be done to, in, 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 almost in a, in a feeling of guilt of how he was privileged, understood that he was privileged, and, and, and couldn't really um, make amends effectively mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. But whereas he could see, just through correspondence, that, that his family were, were suffering. And obviously mm -hmm. many other people, of course, in the country were as well. I must. I don't think that that feeling is around, in Russia is around anymore. In other words, no, no. If if one can trace a lineage back uh, to pre-revolutionary privileged groups, I think people rather happily do it. Uh, partly readjusting things from the communist period. Okay. Yes. Um. <coughs> Oh, Hi. okay, sorry. No, no, you're right. You, you carry on and then we'll come forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, my apologies. Hi, um, my name's Melanie Balfour. I'm a history teacher and lapsed PhD student. Um, I, I'm interested, among other things, in the relationship between the historiography that you discussed at the beginning of your talk um, and the public sentiment um, in Russia, um, partly because I suppose I'm aware as a history teacher, of the relative uh, <laughs> the relative delay with which kind of changes in the discussion in the historiography kind of seep down into the way in which we talk about history in schools, especially in terms of <coughs> constructing a kind of national history. Um, and so my question is relates to two things. One is how um, how far and how quickly the discussion of the Russian Revolution changed within schools in Russia after 1989. And secondly, how much that, uh, that moment in Russian history is, is a focus of uh, Russian history in schools now and what influence that might have on the, uh, the forgetting that is now happening as regards the revolution. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, my sense was that that the Russian Revolution disappeared from discussion quickly, uh, but that nobody had to think about that because it was not, there wasn't anything like the centenary to draw attention to the fact. And in the, 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 the textbooks, uh, there was a sort of readjustment of claims, but nevertheless, the revolution remained in there as part of a, um, a progression that was at any rate associated with... with um, with something that, that Russians could identify with. So my sense of it was that the centenary really brought them up short. In other words, being forced to confront... Uh, the, the, the preference would have been to simply not talk about it until it becomes clearer what you want to say about it and how, how you're going to fit it in. Uh, uh, as, as things fell into place, uh, you know, you sort of got the Stalin period back in, so to speak, and perhaps the, the, the Russian Revolution would fall in. 
with, with due course, but then comes the centenary and, and, and causes it, it seems to me, a, a, a simply uh, forcing discussion of something which nobody feels is the time to discuss it. Thanks, yes, so um, this will be... Uh, do you think that there is anything that good that came out of the revolution that ought to be celebrated on its <laughs> centenary? Yeah. Uh, yes, well, of course, I'm a very non-celebrating person, uh, so that I... But, but I do have to, um, have to occasionally confront this question about whether uh, what came out of it. Uh, I, I don't know that I'd put it in terms of good. Uh, rather, I mean, that is to say, I would... Be, I, I, that doesn't... I'd rather think of it not quite in, 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 in moral terms, but rather in terms of, in, uh, in, in its own terms, did it do any of the things it said it would do? <clears throat> and of course, the ideals are, you know, there are completely contradictory aspirations that are expressed simultaneously, and not all of them could possibly uh, be realized. But my sense was that the, the, uh, the one that came, that went furthest, was the modernization one, understanding socialism as a form of modernization with the state, the engine of that modernization, with the focus on economic modernization and particularly on industrialization. Uh, and so that actually had, uh, if, 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 you, if that particular uh, 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 sort of revolutionary thrust uh, produced quite a lot in the pre-war period. Uh, <coughs> And, uh, and, and the, the immediate post-war period too. The trouble was, from our point of view, looking back at that, uh, it would be hard now to, uh, I mean, it, to celebrate that kind of modernization would be difficult because the, uh, the, the, the industry that they built so proudly now looks like sort of uh, uh, environmentally polluting smokestack industry which is hopelessly old-fashioned. In other words, that kind, that notion of modernity already looks very outdated. However, I'm, I mean, <coughs> if you're thinking about revolutionary success and failure, <coughs> I, it is, it, it's hard to imagine that any outcome could be, as it were, permanently successful. It seems to me you need, you need a, time, <coughs> a time frame. And if you set yourself a 20-year time frame and said, what does the revolution achieve? you could make that modernization frame. <coughs> if you set yourself a 50-year time frame, you'd be in more trouble and worse with an 80-year one. Okay, yes. This one. <coughs> um, could you tell us a little bit about what has happened in the other parts of the Soviet Union which got caught up in the whole idea of the Russian Revolution? By that I mean... <coughs> think of the way Soviet history was written, what happened in Central Asia and Central Asian republics or was all happened as a consequence of the Russian Revolution. Now, what's happened in the Central Asian republics or in Georgia or Armenia over the last 20 years? How are their historians writing their histories. <coughs> has the revolution, do you see, is the revolution seen as a bad thing or is it just not treated at all? You know, I, there's a whole, a whole realm of knowledge that I don't possess. The only one I've looked at 
to any degree is the Kazakhstan one. And I did look, I, I, and, but this was a couple of years ago, so it, it wasn't, it, it's, it's not um, really up to date in terms of celebration of the revolution. But I was very interested in how the Kazakhs had, <coughs> had rethought their history. Uh, because the first part of it is okay. Uh, in other words, we, we, we have a, the, 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 um, the, the sort of embryo of a Kazakh nation which, which, which emerges and so on. And then comes Russian colonialism in the Tsarist period. So this is basically a Soviet story, the Russian colonialism. Uh, and then comes the revolution, which is a good thing in the, in the version of the history text I saw. Uh, and, um, or at least a fairly good thing. I mean, there's a little, there was a little bit of, um, of, of, un, uh, of, of sort of uncertainty there. <coughs> but then you came to the Second World War and that chapter in the, the history that I read uh, a school text that I read. That chapter was wonderful. It was just a straightforward Soviet account of the Second World War. Kazakhs, Kazakhs fought nobly with other, you know, with Russians and other, other, other people against the great, uh, you know, against the invasion and the enemy, and, and we had a glorious victory. Uh, so then after the war, uh, things start to sort of go downhill, and then you have Nazarbayev after a while who comes and makes everything okay. But so the, the, the Russian Revolution as colonial liberation was in there. But what they're doing now, I don't know, whether they are proposing to celebrate. The only Republican discussion uh, that I saw about celebration came from the Ukraine uh, that said, uh, and that, that was a government sp spokesman saying, uh, certainly we won't forget to notice the Russian Revolution because it, of 17 because it needs to be pointed out how bad a thing it was. So that was their promise, but how, how, how much they fulfilled, I don't know. Yes, <laughs> gentleman in the front here. Um, I, I have um, I found your uh, lecture very in interesting and stimulating. Um, two things that seem to um, interest me a great deal that have emerged from your lecture are, this, first of all, this notion of... Um, the, the, the government wanting the revolution, the centenary to be seen in terms of some form of reconciliation. Reconciliation um, is just an anodyne concept, almost meaningless, and it's very soporific and, you know, it, it's probably designed to deliberately send people to sleep. It doesn't really get people thinking about the really important and controversial issues that emerged from the revolution. Um, the other thing I find quite interesting about your, um, um, your, your lecture is the whole idea of, which is very Russian, of a top-down um, um, rather than a bottom-up um, sort of um, approach to uh, the centenary. So it's the state and the Kremlin basically saying, well, the only legitimate forum for discussing the centenary um, is the, uh, our academics and ac academia generally, but what it, this, 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 this state doesn't want is for ordinary Russian people to be debating uh, this centenary and what it means and so on, because clearly this is a, re a regime, in my opinion, which is very paranoid about revolution, um, as demonstrated by its, um, its concerns around you know, the, the, the sort of um, tulip revolution in, in Kyrgyzstan and the orange revolution 
in 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 um in Ukraine and and so on, and 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 obviously the Arab Spring and how that's destabilized Russian interests in the Middle East. This is a regime which doesn't want ordinary people to be um, talking about the Russian Revolution because it might lead those ordinary peoples to go onto the streets and question the legitimacy of Putin himself. Well, I think that's quite right that they <coughs> absolutely don't want, yeah, don't want people, uh, people, as I put it, reviving the old sectarian uh, passions. Uh, now, I don't know to what degree that is, uh, there is an active preventing of people who want to come and discuss it. Uh, uh, you, you know, that, that is not clear to me. Uh, uh, the, the reconciliation bit, I mean, I have a mixed re- response myself to the reconciliation message because in a way, you know, you, you have to say, well, reconciliation isn't, can't be bad in a, in a society. At the same time, it is, the way they put it drains all significance from the revolutionary agenda. You know, it doesn't matter because there was some heroism and there were, there were good intentions on both sides, but there, was no, there were no stakes there were no real stakes. Uh, that's the assumption in this whole reconciliation thing. Because if, if you thought there, uh, um, there, there were just unfortunate misunderstandings that people, or rather people had their own different interests, and so they clashed. Uh, but it's remarkable for the lack of discussion of any, any idea that might be involved, might have been involved in the revolution, on either side, as a matter of fact. So... Anybody poised to ask a question? While you're thinking about it, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's striking that you've turned your attention to memoirs recently, and I think, just speaking for myself, that it's interesting to put your scholarly work and your memoirs together because it seems to me that one of the things you brought to your scholarly work is a function of the way you grew up and the commitments that you had. Now, it was a highly politicised time to be talking about the Soviet Union when you became a young scholar. But your background enabled you to to have some sort of sense of understanding of the people you were studying while still having some distance to it. And I wonder what you think about the current period where that politicisation's fallen away and what kind of a background would now be a good background for a young scholar to bring to bear to consider this very different type of Russia which you've been describing. And what was it in my background that you, you, you felt was well, an I, advantage? I, I thought because your I mean because your family was clearly of the left in some sense and that your, your father was not unsympathetic to the Soviet Union that enabled you to not be anti-Soviet and yet your own personal commitments didn't lie in any sort of pro-Soviet direction and so Somehow you seem to me anyway to not become party to this highly politicised debate to the extent that some did. No, I certainly saw myself as, as, as apolitical, but I wouldn't... I mean, as, as well, apolitical, that, that's... I did see myself as apolitical, but that, that was not the main point. I, I, I then... I, I had what was no doubt a naive belief in, in the possibility of objective or at least the desirability of trying to be objective. And so I wanted not to be a partisan. Whether having left-wing parents whom I uh, uh, was influenced by but also argued with 
whether that whether that contributed helpfully to my wanting not to take a partisan stance, I don't know. It was also the case at the University of Melbourne, where I, 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 I was taught history uh, initially, uh, there um, the non-partisan objective stance was much approved. And therefore, you know, I think I could have got it without, um, mm -hmm. uh, without any, um, any parental help or, or any help from the uh, parental background. Uh, but... Uh, you know, all those years of the Cold War, uh, and I was being a Soviet historian in America at that time, and I, I felt as if it was tremendously, that the political passions and the, the requirement of political partisanship, or the assumption of political partisanship, was I thought it was a great detriment uh, to the scholarship. Uh, and that it made life, uh, it, 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 it distorted arguments and so on. And, and I saw it as wholly negative. Now I don't know whether I would see it as all that negative in that it, I mean, yes, negative. But at the same time, there was the positive aspect that people really thought that it mattered what they were arguing about. There was a sense that, um, uh, and I thought, you know, I thought it really matters to find out what happened in Soviet history. I'm not sure that I could reproduce this again, uh, you know, coming in, in, in now, but I, I thought this is really a key thing. It, it, it actually matters in some way outside of the, uh, the scholarly profession, even although I didn't want to really talk to them. I was addressing myself to the scholarly profession, but I, I, thought, I, I, I thought it all mattered. That, that would be harder probably going in uh, now to... Um, uh, uh, to, uh, I mean, basically, if I were becoming a historian now, I don't think I would go into study of the Russian Revolution, because I, I, I why wouldn't I do it? But what, would you what, go into? what would I go into? But how do I know? Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not starting off. It. I would go into somewhere. First of all, I wouldn't go into the Russian Revolution probably because of the feeling it's been very much worked over. And the thing I always liked was going something that hasn't been worked over. And where the, where, the, where, the, where the agenda hasn't been set and where, where you know, everybody doesn't feel they know what the questions are. And where the data are new, you know, there's new data and therefore you can rethink, you can think in terms of that new data. Uh, so where would that lead me? I'm not quite sure. Um, in, uh, yeah, I don't know. But that, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that, um, uh, that would influence I think, my choice. <clears throat> so, was there anybody else who wanted there to... There was one up the there back, I thought. was someone, no? yeah. Did you want to have a go? Or? Yeah. This conference in September that you mentioned, um, is it likely to look into Marxism, for example? Perish the thought. No, I, I, I really don't think that... <laughs> there was no, as far as I could see, there was no panel on ideology. Uh, no, it seemed... That, uh, 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 now, of course, that slightly contradicts what I said about, about, about it could have been fun, uh, an application for a, an American foundation because that probably would discuss Marxism. No, it was, there was, as I remember, there is rather no ideological content uh, a great emphasis on the impact of the revolution outside of Russia, and particularly outside the, the, the Russian heartlands. I think they do have the borderlands in there. Uh, and, um, and then this, um, as I say, this panel on revolution and violence, or revolution as violence, 
uh, which is a very, um, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very uh, sort of American scholarly way of putting it. Uh, now, I must say that I actually, in response to them, they wrote back and said, will you give a paper? And I looked at it and I thought, I don't want to do the violence, I don't want to do the global impact. But I was, the week before, giving a paper in Paris, which happened to be in a cultural, pro, uh, um, a cultu a cultural impact of the revolution thing. And, um, <clears throat> and so I was going to go back to my old subject of Lunacharsky and, um, and have a look at it. I mean, that's what they asked me to do, look at my first book look at my dissertation and see what I think about it 50 years on or whatever. So I thought, um, so I wrote back to the organizing committee saying, yeah, I could give a paper, but it would, uh, 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 what I would prefer to give a paper on is Lenin, uh, uh, is revolution and enlightenment. Now, which is, uh, I thought that I, it was a bit mischievous because I thought that sounds like a pro-Soviet topic, revolution and enlightenment, they won't like that. Are they going to refuse it? And, uh, but no, they wrote back, I mean, they're probably desperate for anybody to give a paper. So they wrote back and said, enlightenment is fine. <laughs> so. Okay, well, um, I, I just want to make a few points. I mean, I think it's been very interesting listening to you today. I mean, one thing you've done is you've gone through a kind of a narrative account, really, of the historiography and the different disputes that have been in it, in it over the period of your... Uh, scholarly life, um, and to some extent before. And, I mean, I think it's brought out a number of important points. I mean, though you say you wouldn't want to be studying Russia, it's striking that in political life in France, in Germany, in the United States, everywhere there is again talk of Russia. And it seems to me that in making your argument that there's a deep confusion and embarrassment about how to celebrate the Russian Revolution in the Putin government itself, you've highlighted in a way the deeply unsettled nature of that society and polity at the moment. And it leaves me, anyway, with the impression that that society which we're all talking about again is much more volatile, potentially volatile, um, than it might from the outside appear. So I think people might still want to study Russia, having listened to your speech. I'm certainly very grateful for hearing your um, insights after, a, you know, really a lifetime of thought about this. Um, before I end, I just wanted to repeat a couple of things. Um, one is that the, um, this, this prize-winning book is on sale outside, and um, Professor Fitzpatrick will be staying here, and if you want to get a signature on it, you can. There's also the the wonderful second volume of her memoirs, um, A Spy in the Archives. Um, and I just also want to mention that next Tuesday we have another special Miliband event to think about the impact of the French election on the left, not a revolutionary topic this time, but one of high topicality. But before you go and buy this book, can I ask you to join me in thanking our speaker, Professor Sheila Fitzpatrick.